the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter 15, Remnants. You don't always talk this much when you're on patrol, do you? Martin whispered over his shoulder. No, Margaret answered. But you and I almost never had patrols together. Susan's leaving kind of scrambled the schedule, he said. Yeah, you're really worried about her, aren't you? You've been moping around ever since you got back. Moping? Well, you've hardly said ten words in two days. That qualifies as moping. Is that why you keep talking while we're on patrol, when we're supposed to be quiet and listening? He whispered softer. I guess so, she replied in a quieter whisper. I can tell you're worried about her. I am too. It was awfully brave of her to agree to help them. She's in God's hands now. They emerged from their backwoods path onto the fire trail. A fresh quarter inch of fluffy snow had fallen overnight. Their previous footprints were still visible, but blurred. The trees looked extra white, since no wind had yet blown the snow off of the hemlock fronds and bare maple branches. They passed the big rocks that marked the entrance to the gravel pit. "'I know you liked her,' Margaret whispered. Martin felt himself blush. How does one respond to such a statement? I did, too, Margaret continued. I'll admit, at first, I was a little put out. I've gotten used to the empty nest lifestyle. But she grew on me, almost felt like another Lindsay. She probably felt like another Lindsay to you, too. Martin sighed. He didn't know quite what he felt. Did he feel fatherly? He had been avoiding really examining what he felt for fear that he wouldn't like the answer. He liked her company. Susan was undeniably attractive, although he refused to let himself think of her that way. Nonetheless, life was interesting with Susan around. It promised to be a lot less turbulent with her away. Now that he thought about it, the same thing happened with his daughter Lindsay. While she was going to school and living at home, life was usually turbulent. Once she left for college, the empty nest was very quiet. Was Susan an alternate Lindsay? As they neared the little river, Martin spotted fresh tracks in the snow. Hey, look, his whisper was barely audible. He pointed to the tracks. Turkey. It looks like only one. A lone Tom, or a Jake, I'd guess. Are you going to try to get it? she asked. Do you want Dustin's shotgun? Yes. He traded with her, shotgun for carbine. Let's see where it leads. He motioned with his finger across his lips for her to be hunter quiet. She nodded. The tracks meandered along the fire trail, then down the embankment toward the river. It had paced back and forth a few times, as if looking for a way to walk across. An area of torn-up snow testified that it had given up on walking, and opted to fly instead. Martin chose his footing carefully on the rocks. The new snow coating made them slick. The water burbled softly as it swirled around the rocks. It flowed too quickly to freeze, despite the low temperatures. Margaret had the benefit of stepping in his already packed footprints. 
on the opposite side of the little river, Martin found an equally torn-up patch of snow. Turkeys were not graceful landers. The tracks led up the embankment. Martin moved slowly, peeking over the rise, in case the tom was still in the trail ahead. It wasn't. The tracks led on. A few yards down the trail, a set of boot prints led out of the woods and paralleled the turkey tracks. Someone else had seen the tracks. Martin continued to follow the two sets of tracks, feeling disappointed at coming in second in the hunt. He persisted because he hadn't heard any shots. In the hush of the woods, even a bow would make a noticeable noise. Perhaps the bird had eluded the booted man and was still available for a persistent number two. Martin stopped, puzzled by the prints. The turkey tracks led down the trail. The boot prints, however, stopped. The booted man stood in place for a while. Those prints were deeper. Boot man had taken several side steps and even stood on his toes once. The boot tracks then left the trail to enter the woods. What did he see? Martin wondered. What was more interesting than food? Martin pointed to the tracks leading to the woods. He gestured to Margaret that he wanted to check them out. This was the primary reason for patrols, after all. She nodded and got a firmer grip on the carbine. The boot prints meandered through the trees with occasional sidesteps. Bootman must have been trying to get a view of something farther ahead. Suddenly there was a scream, a woman's scream. It was followed by a man's voice shouting. The words were garbled, but the tone was clearly angry. She screamed again, sounding much more like rage than terror. Martin bounded into a sprint, bobbing, weaving, and ducking through the trees. A woman's scream was never a good thing. Martin slid to a stop at the edge of a small clearing. In the center of the clearing stood a round hut, perhaps six or seven feet in diameter, standing four feet high. The voices came from within. The woman's voice grunted loud protests. The man's voice uttered epithets. Snow fell off of the hut as it shook and flexed from the struggle within. Martin moved around the hut, looking for a doorway. He slid off the safety and shouldered the shotgun. "'Damn your spit!' the man growled. "'I'll make you pay for that!' The man was too large to easily pass through the doorway. As he backed out, the rifle across his back snagged the door's edge. Martin stood a few paces behind him, ready to aim. He motioned for Margaret to take up a position to his left. "'Ain't many to pick from nowadays,' said the man. "'You'll have to do.' He pulled hard on a yellow rope. A young woman fell out of the hut, her wrists tied together with the yellow rope. She quickly got on her feet and pulled against the rope. "'Oh, you've got a lot of fight in you,' the man said with a cruel laugh. "'I like that.' He backed away, pulling his victim along, despite her efforts to resist. Martin shoved the shotgun barrel into the middle of the man's back. "'Stop right there,' he said loudly. The man started to turn to see who had him at gunpoint. Martin recognized his squinty eyes and mustache goatee. He was one of the shopping cart beggars who tried to shake down Nick. "'Don't turn,' Martin said. "'Buckshot'll blow a hole clear through you.' The man froze. Look, this ain't none of your business. I found this uh, trespasser, and Buckshot doesn't care. Drop the rope. The man let go of the rope, but it was also clipped to his belt. First, Martin said, drop the rifle. 
the man slowly lowered the deer rifle, butt first, to the snow. Aim for his head, Martin said. Margaret racked the carbine's bolt. Even though there was a round already chambered, she knew the man needed to hear that there was a second gun aimed at him. Hands up, Martin ordered, with a poke from the shotgun for emphasis. Martin went through the man's coat pockets. Nothing. He patted down his legs. Nothing in the cargo pants pockets. He felt along the man's boot tops. He pulled out a knife. Patting around his waistband, Martin found a pistol. What are you going to do with him? Margaret asked. Martin winced. He would have rather she hadn't spoken. A woman? The man started to turn toward Margaret. Martin jabbed the shotgun barrel harder into the man's back. I said, don't turn around, and I'm not going to say it again. Martin glanced at Margaret. She had a worried look. Perhaps she realized she shouldn't have spoken. Perhaps she was still wondering what to do with the large man. What do we do with him? Martin wondered. Worrying about how Susan was getting along, and all the other worries, had drained him, mentally. He was feeling callous enough to entertain simply shooting the man and being done with him. Yet his conscience wouldn't get out of his way. All this time the man's would-be victim stood silently at the end of the yellow rope. Her legs were still wide apart, braced to resist the rope. Tangled dark hair hung over her face. Two wild eyes stared out between strands of hair. The young woman breathed hard, but made no other sound. "'You're thinking you should just kill him, aren't you?' said Margaret. "'I am.' "'Look, buddy,' the goatee man started to say. "'Shut up!' Martin snapped. "'You also know it would be murder,' she said. "'I do.' Martin pushed the man by his shoulder until he was facing the direction that he had come. Martin stayed behind him with the shotgun in his back. With the knife he had confiscated from the man, Martin cut the yellow rope from the man's belt. Now, get walking, Martin said. Don't look back or turn to the left or the right. Keep going straight. She can drop a buck at three hundred yards. In truth, Margaret had never been deer hunting. Still, it was not a complete fabrication. She was a good marksman. Keep in mind how much larger you are than a buck. Now, get going, and don't ever come back here. If I ever catch you on my land again, I'll kill you. Martin pushed the man forward to start his walk. The man stumbled a few steps, then picked up his pace. Keep your sights on the center of his back, Martin said loudly enough. If he so much as half turns, drop him. The man walked faster. Martin didn't like releasing the man. He was worried that the man, easily twice Martin in weight, might somehow overpower him, leaving Margaret and the almost victim vulnerable. Martin turned his attention to the victim again. She was standing in the snow, in stocking feet. She wore no coat. Her shirt was torn off one shoulder. Then he recognized the flannel shirt. Mara? he said softly. She looked up suddenly at the sound of her name. She wiped some of the hair out of her face with her bound wrists. She locked eyes with him. It was Mara. She didn't look photoshopped any longer, but she had a sort of savage beauty. Martin noticed that her cheeks seemed full. She wasn't starving. After a moment's hesitation, Mara turned and ran away into the woods, trailing the yellow rope behind her. But wait! Martin called after her. In less than a few seconds... Mara was gone. I can't see him anymore, Margaret said. Do you think he'll double back? 
Eh, Not right now, Martin said. We're armed, and he isn't. He might come back later, once he's rearmed himself. He was one of those beggars that tried to strong-arm Nick. I recognized him. That means they didn't leave the area. He didn't have a backpack or any other supplies on him, so they must be holed up somewhere close. Oh, swell, Margaret said. A kidnapper rapist is living in our backwoods. And what about that girl? She just ran off. I was still sighted on the big man, but I heard her run away. Why would she just run away? Could be she still doesn't like me. What? You know her? Well, kind of, Martin said. That was Mara, the leader of the Utopians at the gravel pit. I only met her one time, and boy, howdy, she didn't like me. Guess she didn't go too far after the commune of primal peace dissolved. You mean she's been living in this hut of sticks all this time? Margaret sounded shocked. It got down to ten degrees last night. Martin examined Mara's hut. Despite the shaking he saw, it was sturdily built. He stooped to look in the doorway. The floor was covered in dry grass topped with hemlock boughs. The sapling supports were lashed together with cord of braided fibers. Around the perimeter lay several firs, coyote, fox, and something dark that Martin didn't recognize. He pulled the dark fur over to study it, only to find that it was attached to a fox pelt. They were sewn together with what looked like rawhide strips. It was a boot. The coyote furs were a loose coat or a cape. Mara was hunting, skinning, and probably eating the coyotes, foxes, and whatever it was with the dark fur, a fisher perhaps. Maybe we shouldn't be messing around here, Margaret said over his shoulder. What if it's like birds who don't want to return to a nest if people mess with it? Martin thought it was interesting that Margaret referred to Mara as if she were a wild animal. Mara certainly did look the part. Well, she's out there in her socks and no coat. Eh, She'll come back. A faint whiff of smoke caught Martin's attention. He pulled aside the grass and hemlock scattered on the floor. Mara had a small fire pit near the door. Struggling with the goatee man had trashed her arrangement. Martin tossed the smoldering grass out into the snow. He pushed the rocks back into a ring. A few embers glowed among the gray ashes. Martin fetched the smoldering grasses and put them back in the pit. He broke up some small sticks from Mara's kindling pile and laid them carefully over the grass. With a few blows, he had a small flame. "'What are you doing?' Margaret asked impatiently. "'Restarting her fire,' Martin said between breaths. "'She's going to be plenty cold when she comes back. This will at least assure that she finds some embers and not stone-cold ash. Trying to restart a fire from nothing, when you're almost frozen, would be really tough.' While adjusting the rocks, Martin found a piece of glass, maybe three inches in diameter. One side had been napped into a sharp, jagged edge. She skinned and cut up coyotes with a glass knife, Martin thought. He laid Goatee Man's knife beside the glass knife. He imagined that she might refuse to use it, a symbol of patriarchal, capitalist, imperialist oppression, or something philosophically awful. On the other hand, she might be cold and hungry enough to use whatever tools were available. His eyes followed the ribbons of smoke up to the roof of the hut. Strips of meat hung from thin sticks. Coyote jerky? Come on, urged Margaret. 
If she's going to come back, we need to go before she freezes to death out there. Right. Let's follow the big man's footprints and see where he went, Martin said. Prince led up to the trudge path along the highway. The boot marks met the path at almost exactly a 90-degree angle. There was no hint of which way, left or right, the man had turned. The path had been walked on by many people already that day. The soles of the man's boots were a fairly generic pattern. It was impossible to tell his prints from others already in the path. Maybe it was a mistake to let him go, Margaret said. Well, you wouldn't let me shoot him, Martin teased. Well, of course not. Actually, I don't think we had a lot of choice, Martin said. I thought maybe I'd tie his hands and we'd take him to Chief Berg, but he was much bigger than I am. If he made a sudden move on me, I wasn't sure you'd shoot him. Yeah, I don't know if I would have, she confessed. Yeah, and if he got the better of me, he'd be alone with you and Mara. That seemed like a big risk. Then I thought maybe you could tie him up while I held the carbine on him. I'd have no problem shooting him. Martin, she scolded. Anyhow, if he made a sudden move on you, he might get you as a human shield or a hostage. I didn't want to have you anywhere near him. All that left me with was to make him leave. I didn't like it then, and I still don't. But all the same, I didn't see any options. Do you think he'll try to get Mara again? Uh, maybe. We'll have to extend our patrol loop over to the river to keep an eye out for signs of him. Oh, I just can't wrap my head around the whole thing, you know, Andy said. He held the end of a wooden ski firmly. The bench vice alone wasn't enough to hold the long ski steady. Martin drew his cabinet scraper along the curved underside of the ski. He and Carlos had been partially successful in steam-bending the thin maple boards, but the bend still raised spikes of grain along the outside curve. He hoped the scraper would trim them back without raising more. His block plane was too aggressive. I mean, Mara was, like, uh, super serious about her paleo skills and all. Man, she had a confidence thing like nobody's business. If anyone was going to make it in the wild, it would have been Mara. Still, skinning coyotes with a glass knife. Oh, man, that's raw to the max. Martin was only half listening to Andy as he worked. In his mind, he was tracing the path Susan, Charon, and Malcolm planned to follow. It had been three days since she left. They should have reached the bridge by this point. He would have liked some sort of confirmation signal. Lindsay had always been good about texting him when she arrived someplace. There was no texting anymore, or telephones. Even radio messages were spotty and slow. Martin knew their task required radio silence. He just didn't like it. Cause, like, sure, Ashley, she knew all about her medicinals and all, and Kelsey, she was really good with fiber arts, but they didn't have the same fire inside, you know? So it was really kind of cool to hear that Mara's still out there, living the paleo dream, not needing anybody. Until a big man tried to kidnap her, Martin interjected. She was headed for far more primal than she planned for. Oh, yeah, right, huh? And you said the big man just disappeared like a 300-pound ghost? Uh, that's, like, creepy-like. Oh, he was no ghost, but I'll be darned if I could figure out where he went, Martin muttered. 
I must have traced those trudge paths for a half a mile in all directions, but found nothing, no prints matching his. You'd think with fresh snow we'd be guaranteed some prints to follow. I still wonder if he's in that yellow house. No one answered there. Just then, Lucas tapped on the garage window. He mouthed, "They're back, through the glass. Martin worried earlier that an eight-year-old might be too prone to letting his mind wander to be trusted on watch, but Lucas was vigilant. Dustin and Judy came down to the garage. Oh, cool, Dustin said. You've made great progress, even with Carlos gone. He held up the finished ski, examined the wooden box under which the wheel of the buckboard was supposed to be secured. When more snow fell, wheels would be a problem. The buckboard needed skis. Oh, but I came down to tell you. Dustin suddenly remembered having news. We saw her, Judy interrupted. Well, I saw her. We went across the river, like you said, and looked for prints. We didn't see any, except yours from before. But, Dustin continued, we did see a bunch of little wooden axes made of sticks tied together, tied to the tree trunks. I think she put them up on all the trees around her camp, like some sort of keep-out sign. Remember? Like in that Planet of the Apes movie you made us watch, The Forbidden Zone? So that's what we did, said Judy. We didn't go beyond her little exes. And we didn't see her around there anyhow, said Dustin. It wasn't until we were back across the river and headed on the rest of our patrol loop. That's when I saw her, said Judy. It made the hair stand straight up on the back of my neck. It was so creepy. One second she wasn't there, then the next second she was. She was looking from behind a tree, dressed in shaggy furs. I tried to get Dustin's attention, but then she was gone. I never really saw her, actually, confessed Dustin. She was back in the hemlocks, just a shadow, if anything. Oh, she was there all right, maintained Judy. I could feel it. "'Whoa!' said Andy, with breathless awe. "'Mara is a Sasquatch. "'Oh, I read about them. "'People feeling like they're being watched all the time, "'but seeing only glimpses. "'Don't you see? "'This could be it. "'All this time, Sasquatch wasn't no missing link thing. "'It's been some paleo dudes, uh, or dudettes, "'in coyote fur, living in the woods. "'Wow, we might have just solved the mystery of the—' uh, "'I don't think so, Andy.' Martin said flatly. Still, it's good to hear that Mara is up and around. We're back, Margaret called down the stairs. What are you doing down there? Solving the mystery of the Sasquatch, Andy shouted eagerly. What? Martin leaned into the stairwell. Never mind, he turned to Andy. Get your coat. Now that Margaret and Carlos are back, we can go to the town farm and bring them the miracle of pine fries. "'Oh, I'm seriously serious, Mr. No-Sir,' said Andy. Uh, "'I could help carry some of that stuff. "'I'm not on my crutch anymore, see? "'I've got, like, uh, both hands just swinging in the breeze "'and nothing to do but swing like a bird. "'That's fine,' Martin said over his shoulder. "'Carry a bucket.' "'He handed the empty five-gallon bucket over his shoulder. "'He hoped he bought a little quiet "'as they followed the narrow path through the snow. "'He still wondered if Susan was safe.' Uh, eh, I, uh, I hate to interrupt your moping. I am not moping, Martin insisted. Why does everyone think I'm moping? Oh, I don't know. Well, maybe you're not. But if, like, everyone thinks you are, well, then something, well, maybe you are, uh, the something. 
What you saying? Martin only growled to himself. Oh, you're still all anxiously about Miss Susan, Andy continued. Oh, I know. Uh, I can tell. Can't say I blame you, though. I mean, Mara going off into the wild wasn't such a big deal. I mean, she was all ready to worry a princess anyhow. But Susan? Well, she's more of a city girl who... Andy, that's not helping. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, but Susan, she's got some warrior princess in her, too. Andy forced a little laugh. <laughs> right? Martin agreed, but he didn't want to talk about it any longer. Stressing wouldn't help Susan or him. The best medicine for him was the distraction in work. Once they reached the town farm, Martin explained to Mr. Webster and Paul about pine fries. He brought a small bagful as proof. The farm supplies were dwindling, but the farm had many large white pines. A large tree would yield dozens of pounds of edible bark. The catch was that it would have to be stripped and cooked as soon as possible after the tree was cut down. Letting it set too long caused loss of nutrients, and as it dried out, it became harder to separate from the tree's outer bark. It was also harder to chew. Paul rounded up a crew. All able-bodied residents were needed. The two sick residents weren't up to helping. Mrs. Webster needed several people in the kitchen to manage the cook stove and the many fry pans. The rest were assigned to Paul's forest crew. Okay, we got four people with buck saws, two with knives and hatchets. We have two more for the cutting, and, uh, where's Adam? Paul asked. I saw him in the kitchen, said a woman in the group. Hmm, Paul grumbled. We'll go tell him and Trish, that I said we're working outside today. Mrs. Webster has all the help she needs in the kitchen. He's still avoiding me? Martin asked. Yeah, probably, but too bad for him. From what you told me, we have lots of work to get done as soon as we can. The woman returned with Adam and Trish trailing behind her. The two of them melted into the back of the crowd. Okay, everyone, Paul shouted. This trip into the woods will be a little different. We need to strip the bark off of the tree and then separate the white inner bark. This guy here, Andy, will show you how that works. The white bark is what needs to be cut up into chunks, keeping it as clean as possible. If you don't have an assignment already, you're on bucket duty. Take the bark to the kitchen where they're going to cook it. Eat bark? A young man protested. He had an ate-a-bug look on his face. Yes, Martin said. It doesn't have much taste, and it's not a wonder food or anything, but it has some carbs and can be filling. It'll help the existing supplies to last longer. A volley of questions came at Martin all at once. He deferred them. They would understand pine fries soon enough. They needed to get started. Martin and Paul selected a big white pine that looked like it had an easier path to fall along. Everyone stood a respectful distance away as Martin and Paul began the notch cut. Paul was too eager. He pushed too hard, causing the saw to bow and bind. He had a tendency to pull up instead of keeping the saw horizontal. The result was extra friction that only tired them out more quickly. They traded off with the next pair. Martin sat in the snow to catch his breath and cool off. The replacements were having even less success developing a rhythm with the saw. When his scalp and ears felt cold, Martin knew that it was time to resume work. He and Paul finished the upper cut of the notch. The big wedge of pine fell away. 
Martin took a few moments to line up where he wanted the felling cut to start. He let the second team start the cut. The shallow cut would bind less. They would make more apparent progress. Martin and Paul finished the felling cut. It was deep, and the pine was so big around that there was only a foot or so of saw blade to push and pull. This actually helped prevent the binding. Nonetheless, cutting through that much wood was a lot of work. Muffled cracks and snaps sounded from deep within the tree trunk. "'Get ready, everyone!' Martin shouted. Even though the tree seemed motionless, it snapped and cracked more loudly. "'Timber!' shouted Andy. "'Oh, heck yeah, I always wanted to shout timber when a tree was falling, but it just never came up, or I was too late. I said it once when I knocked over a ladder, but that wasn't quite the same thing.' The big pine tilted noticeably and gained momentum. It would have looked like a film in slow motion, were it not for the broken branches. They fell at normal speed. The crew pulled back even farther. With a mighty thud that shook the ground, the big pine was down. The branching crew set to trimming off the branches that survived the plummet from the canopy. Martin and Paul began the first vertical cut. It took two trade-offs of teams to get through the trunk. Once the slice fell free, Andy showed the knife team how to use their hatchets to cut the bark into sections. He peeled away the first section, which pulled away with a wet sucking sound. He demonstrated how the cambium layer could be pried away from the dark outer bark with a knife. While the knife crew worked, the cutting team took off another slice. People came with buckets to take the sheets of white inner bark to the kitchen. While taking one of his breaks, Martin watched the people working over the tree. They swarmed around, trimming branches and prying away slabs of bark. Some peeled away the white, while others carried it away. The whole scene reminded him of an 18th-century whaling crew stripping the blubber off of a whale. Paul returned from checking on his crew. Everyone's kind of upbeat about this work. The promise of some new food is good. They've been getting a little testy with each other, Paul chuckled. Everyone's happy but Adam, of course. He's out there grousing about having to work so hard for food. Yeah, do you have an alternative? Martin asked. Oh, same old, same old, replied Paul. Candace convinced him a long time ago that there's free FEMA food out there, so why should he work? I wonder if he'd be happy as a slave, Martin muttered to himself. Well, speaking of work, I'm about beat for today. Think I'll be headed back home. Oh, you can't go now. We're only half done. Uh, can't you leave your saw? Uh, I know you don't like letting it out of your sight. Uh, but maybe just this once. Uh, we need to keep cutting. Martin sighed. He didn't like letting his saw out of his sight. He also didn't like staying at the farm any longer. Promise you'll take extra good care of it? Oh, yeah, you bet, Paul brightened up. And don't keep it in here in the tool shed with the rest. I'd rather it was off someplace separate. Paul rubbed his chin and squinted at the ground. Well, what about that orchard building? That's out of the way, but close enough to fetch. I guess that'll work, Martin said. Just be sure and clean it and oil it before you put it away. What you have left to do will go faster as the tree gets smaller around. Yeah, but the bark gets thinner, too, added Andy. I mean, yeah, at some point it's just not worth the effort to strip the inner bark as it gets so thin. Ah, too bad we can't burn all that green pine wood, Paul lamented. Yeah, might be a way to, said Martin. 
We'll work on that later. See you tomorrow. Maybe. Trudging up the narrow path on Wilson Hill, Martin's arms and legs felt like lead. The short rations were taking a toll on everyone's energy levels. He was glad that Andy insisted on carrying their bucket of pine bark, their share for helping. His mind wanted to imagine that Susan's trip to Northfield went smoothly, that she was bravely blazing a trail over the wooded hills for the trucks to follow. He could picture that. Pessimism, however, has a stronger transmitter. Images of her being captured by a National Guard patrol faded onto his mental screen. He had to shake his head to clear the images. "'It looks like a house party down there,' Andy said. "'Except who has house parties anymore, right?' Martin peered down the long driveway of a house set on the side of Wilson Hill. There were several people milling around in front of the house. When he spotted Chief Berg and Landers among them, his curiosity overruled his fatigue. Uh, "'Let's go see, eh?' "'Hey, Landers,' Martin called out. "'What brings you out here?' "'Ah, hey, Simmons, uh, some bad news, I'm afraid,' said Landers. Uh, "'The Altmans were found dead today. A neighbor was checking on him.' He pointed to a sobbing woman being consoled by her husband. "'Yeah, we just got here a few minutes ago. Looks like uh, more carbon monoxide victims. They had a generator running inside the house.' "'Really?' Martin asked. "'Except for Walter running his radio, I hardly ever hear people running their generators anymore.' Gas has gotten too scarce. Hi there, Simmons, Chief Berg emerged from the front door of the Altman's house. You friends of the Altman's, too? Been a lot of folks coming by to give their respects. Uh, No, never knew him, Martin admitted. Andy and I were just walking home and saw the crowd. Landers said it was monoxide? Looks like it. Found a little generator in the basement with a cord strung to a microwave. Tank was empty, engine cold. So must have happened last night. Found Mrs. Altman in the living room chair. Mr. Altman lying on the floor. Must have just passed out from trying to cook something. The situation reminded Martin of the old man that he and Susan rescued on their way up to Cheshire. Yet something didn't sit right. Would it be okay if I looked too? Martin asked. I won't touch anything. Berg shrugged. I don't see any harm in it, I guess. Come on in. Berg ushered Martin into the modest living room. Mrs. Altman sat, slumped back in a stuffed chair, her head tilted back. She was bundled up in her winter coat, scarf, cap, and boots, but no gloves. A half-full bowl of chicken noodle soup sat balanced on the curved arm of the chair. Mr. Altman lay sprawled beside the coffee table. A patch of dark red stained the blue carpet. Another bowl of soup sat on the sofa's arm. Stuba studied the scene and wrote notes on a clipboard. "'Looks like they were heating up some soup in the microwave,' said Stuba, "'but left the generator running while they ate their supper. "'Judging from the rigor mortis, I'd say they died last night.' "'Oh, my God! Edith!' shrieked a grieving neighbor woman. Berg hadn't closed the front door behind him. Stuba rushed over to corral the grieving neighbor before she could disturb things. Her husband soon caught up with her and held her back. He peered around his wife. Uh, I was just talking to Earl yesterday. He was still angry about the firewood, but seemed okay enough. Stuba began writing down their statements. Martin was puzzled. He turned to Berg and said, 
you've been to a couple other monoxide scenes since this all went down, Berg nodded wearily. Uh, I've only been to one. Well, actually, he didn't die, but he could have, said Martin. At the one I experienced, there was barf. The guy had eaten, and the monoxide was making him sick, so he burped up his meal. The house reeked of barf and exhaust, and the guy was clumsy and disoriented. He knocked a lot of stuff over. Berg studied the woman in the chair. Wouldn't take much to knock that soup off. Maybe she just passed out quickly. Earl, however, Martin stepped around the coffee table. It looks like he fell. Yeah, hit his head on the table on the way down. Berg pointed to a smudge of blood on the corner of the table. He might have knocked himself out hitting the table, then just succumbed to the monoxide. Berg pointed to the nasty wound on the side of Earl's head. Martin stooped down for a closer look. How do you hit a table falling down and still get blood on it? Over here! called out Stuba. He pointed to a small drop of blood on the carpet between the kitchen and where Earl lay. And, and here's another one over here, five feet away. Maybe Earl fell, uh, hit his head on the table, but staggered around. Berg straightened up. Before falling down beside the table again? Uh, that seems unlikely. Uh, would one of you guys pull away that lady's scarf? asked Martin. Why? Well, I'm no expert or anything, but if she was succumbing to monoxide, wouldn't you expect more spilling or spit-up? She's totally clean. At least there'd be dribbles of soup on her scarf. Stuba carefully unwound the knitted scarf from the stiff body. Better have a look at this, chief, he said. Look at those marks on the sides of her neck. Faint bruises? Yeah, I'm no CSI whiz, but I'd say she was choked to death. A murder-suicide thing, maybe? Berg wondered out loud. Impossible, blurted the neighbor woman. Earl loved Edith more than anything. He would never hurt her. Uh, you might want to take a look at this, too, said Martin. He pointed to the soles of the boots that Earl wore. Curvy triangles. I think these are the boots that Red Colliff was certain belonged to the barn burner. A couple of notes in closing. I tried something a little different in this last couple of chapters. A listener and patron on Patreon commented that he sometimes got a little lost when the scenes changed in the story. The long pauses of silence weren't really enough. To help with that, I've taken to adding some sound effects to mark the scene transitions. If the characters were going somewhere, I added the clip-clop of horse hooves or the crunch of footsteps on snow to mark the change. Sometimes it was just a whoosh of winter wind. Did you think that helped with the transitions? Or did you find it distracting? Let me know. Also, I've been quite disappointed in Podbean's ad marketplace. After three months of being signed up as available, I've had no one offer to run an ad. Todd Sepulveda was kind enough to run an ad for his weekly 10 Best Preparedness Articles product, but that campaign ended on August 31st. I'm pestering Podbean about their empty marketplace, but I'm not super confident that it'll amount to much. The Siege series just might be too small of a podcast to attract advertisers. I'm still working on it. In the meantime, consider buying me a coffee now and then on buymeacoffee.com slash mickroland, all one word. 
I really do appreciate the coffee support several of you have been giving me already. Thanks. <laughs>